G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. I'm Josh Zepps and one of the most dangerous ideas of all time was the idea that ordinary people, regular folks, you and me baby, should be champions of our own future, should be the source of authority for the people who rule us, that we should be the ones calling the shots, not our kings or queens or leaders. How though do you sustain that idea when the you and the me and the they gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more diverse? And we invite more and more different kinds of people from all over the world into our little camp. And then we all have to quarrel and argue and figure out what we think about the people who are ruling us, what norms we want, whether or not we're going to have feminism or Sharia law, whether or not we're going to have hijabs or (laughs) who knows what other kind of theocratic nonsense people might be importing from whatever part of the world they happen to come from as they settle in our safe, liberal, tolerant, democratic societies. Yasha Monk is an academic who has wrestled with this kind of thing. He's a total delight. I read his most recent book called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. I didn't actually read it. I listened to the audio book. You'll hear us uh, talk about that in this uh, in this interview. Uh, because he's really trying to wrestle with uh, this idea of how do you take countries that have previously sustained their democratic consensus on the basis of some kind of homogeneity, he's talking mostly about European countries here, Western European countries, and then encourage them to retain the same sense of unity and the same coherence, even as you pour in large numbers of people from abroad and as you open up people's lives to the erosion of traditions that they and norms that they thought were that they could take for granted, whether that is sexual norms, gender norms, transgender norms, gay norms, feminist norms. Uh, he is an interesting thinker because he doesn't have the normal left-wing attitude, which is, ah, oh, don't worry about it. If you, if you have any, any demographic concerns about the changing look of your population, or if you have any worries about the decline of religion or tradition, you're just a bigot and you have to get with the program. Join the 21st century, baby. He thinks that's counterproductive and that will just lead to an increasing flare-up of people on the right. And he's not a right-winger. He's a traditional, small-L, liberal Democrat. He was born in Germany to Polish parents. My dad was also born to Polish parents. Um, And my dad was born in German-speaking Switzerland, well, grew up in German-speaking Switzerland. Uh, so there's a, there are a lot of parallels here. Yasha is a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's written four books. I won't go through all of their names. You can look them up. He's controversial. The progressive left tends to hate him and think he's an apologist for the right. The right hate him and think that he's an effete uh, lefty who doesn't understand what robust white traditional values are. That's kind of why I love him. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Yasha Monk. Well, I had a lovely time recently while I was wandering around the streets of Bangkok uh, listening to uh, the, the Great Experiment, which was a oh, nice great. way to... 
<laughs> I have to say, I, yeah, when I listen to something in a in a place that I'm exploring, it, it creates these really vivid memories. Um, and I've yeah. done my own book, obviously. So I, but I've done it with other books, and and so it, it gives me great pleasure to think of you wandering around Bangkok, listening to a, listening to a good. I hoped that it would. Yes, I always I, I love getting messages from people saying that they were listening to my podcast while they were on a ferry from you know Santorini to somewhere or other, and it sounds it's so romantic. It's lovely to think of these. These yeah, what do you think of the recording? I, I, I thought the, I thought the voice actor was pretty good, but I haven't, I haven't listened to all of it. But, but yeah, I, I thought it was like fine. Was... I mean, I think, I think in in general, I'd rather hear you do it. But yeah, yeah. Know. Are you going to do they your next audio book? Want... You know, they never want that. It's funny. I think perhaps because I have an accent, or you know, they Probably. only want that. I think for people who are either like a level up on celebrity or, or if it's a memoir, obviously. But um, yeah. but at the beginning, I was like, I, I want to record my own book. I'm like, nah, we'll, we'll have somebody, you know, who knows what we're doing to it. Uh, I mean, I think you should, I think you're at a point, of, I think you're at a point of celebrity where you can pull off uh, insisting on it. I, th- I think it depends. Yes, this probably is anti-Bavarian bigotry that you're suffering. Uh, I think so. I think I should, uh, I should but, denounce I my think, publisher for this. Uh, yeah, by now. Yeah, exactly. Let's just call them Nazis. Just say you're not going to talk yeah, that's right. Nazism in the 21st century. Uh, and uh, so you don't want to be persecuted. Um, well, I don't, I don't think the Nazis you. had a strong anti Bavarian vent for, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Who's, who, who's a, who is bigoted against Germans? I mean, maybe you could claim that they're Jews, but that wouldn't really work in the oppression Olympics. Uh, yeah. You, you gotta yeah find even, I mean, other... The funny thing is that even Jews kind of aren't. I mean, some older, you know, some like people in the 70s or 80s or whatever for understandable reasons. But no, it's amazing. You know, it's like BBC. Is it BBC? I think the BBC publishes these um, surveys of people's reputation, the country's reputations around the world. And Germany mm. is always like at the top. And you're like, wow. I mean, Absolutely. You know, you know, that PR firm should really, um, yeah. should really advertise. <laughs> it's true. Everyone thinks of the Germans as being very reasonable. In fact, I cited Germany to just today in a, a tweet. Someone was making the hoary, tired old claim that I hate that uh, America the reason why America is bad at this or bad at that is because it's just too big. This is something I hear a lot from Americans. Oh, well, the population mm. is so large. Of course, we can't do healthcare right. And of course, we didn't get COVID right. And of course, the DMV has long lines. And of course, the post office is staffed by part human, part sloth creatures who can't do anything and move incredibly <laughs> slowly and they're incompetent. <laughs> uh, America's so big, you know, there are too many people. Uh, and so my my general retort to this is that America is, is, is less larger than Australia than Germany is than New Zealand. And nobody goes around saying Germany is so much larger than New Zealand. We couldn't uh, possibly yeah. do, do things the way that New Zealanders do. But Americans are constantly saying this about Australia whenever I say, look, you could do this or that. I mean, Australia does. They say, well, Australia's got such a smaller population, but everything scales. I mean, everything, yeah, we have a smaller population right. and we have a smaller budget and we have a smaller government and we have fewer federal workers. And if we were the size of the United States, you could scale all those things up just as Germany has scaled up New Zealand to be much, much larger. And yeah, Germany is always the argument you can take to the bank because I think everyone sort of agrees, oh, the Germans do things right. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because actually, I guess Australia is in a way a frontier society as well, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Because the other, and the other explanation for America's craziness is just that it's a frontier society, but that doesn't really work either. No, it doesn't. Australia's a different kind of... Australia's a frontier society in which, for some reason, communitarian ideals and conformism were more important. And I wonder if it's because the 
the landscape is so much more hostile, but then it's not, it wasn't where the people were actually living. It's not like everyone was living in the outback. Yeah, I can't right, explain right. it, but I've been, I've been sort of noodling on, this is a tangent, but I, Ross Douthat and uh, Matt Iglesias were having an exchange on Twitter recently about whether or not America's failures during COVID uh, could have been otherwise. And Matt Iglesias was sort of saying, you can imagine an alternate history in which the Trump administration makes different decisions and Trump declares the vaccines to be a great success and, you know, a triumph of his administration and blah, blah, blah. And Matt sort of, pull, you know, uh, lays out this alternate scenario. Ross Douthat jumps in and says, not sure that that's true. I think there are fundamental things that could... And, and Matt says, uh, just look at Australia, which is the most culturally similar country to America and did chose a completely different path. Ross says, I don't think that's true. Someone else jumps into that conversation and says, Josh Sepps, what do you think? Knowing that I've lived for 12 years in the States and, and am Australian. Mm. Um, and so I wrote a thread about this, which could become the basis for an article or even a book or a thesis, I suppose, about... I don't think you could have done Australia, what Australia did in the States. There's something about the American, there's something about the libertarian kind of frontierism in America that is different from the Australian communitarian frontierism. Like we have a term called mateship in Australia and, and the concept of a fair go which are embedded mm. in the national identity and have and loosely sort of mean egalitarianism um, a focus on doing, on falling in line and doing the right thing, uh, and being a good member of the tribe that doesn't exist in the states. And yeah. so, I get so mateship I'd... as a concept, sort of. I, I, at least I assume I do, um, just sort of from knowing how people use the term mate and so on. What, 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 yeah. In Australia, I mean, um, what about fair go? I'm not sure I quite understand that. A fair go is giving someone a fair have a, have a fair go. Having a fair go means, um, I don't know, do you have fair crack of the whip in America? Is that a term? Not really, no. But is it sort of like, like everybody should have a chance? Like everybody should have like uh, an ad bat, I guess. Would say. You know what? Before I even say anything, I'm going to look at what dictionary says it is because I don't want to contaminate it with my own preconceptions. A fair <laughs> go. Uh, let me see. Let me see this. Uh, informal Australian, used for emphasis or to request someone to be reasonable or fair. Fair go. Oh, yeah, right. So it's, so it's more like so, be reasonable, kind of. It's like... Yeah, it's... Yes, exactly. It's like, don't... Don't fuck with me, sort of. It's kind of like, get down... It can be used to mean get down off your pedestal, stop either ripping me off or fucking around, uh, like... Fair go. I mean, if someone was trying to, was trying, if someone was trying to sell you something for more than it was worth, you might say fair go. Uh, the land of the fair go is also sometimes invoked as a sense of uh, yeah, a, an Australia where everyone is is able to get ahead. It has very, it has a great many meanings, like the word mate does as well. Well, right, right. interesting. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Um, great. Anyway, don't know how we got there. Uh, <laughs> you're in the UK now. Yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, spending the term at Oxford. What are you teaching? I'm not teaching anything. I'm just hanging out and going to oh, some great. seminars and strange dinners. And, and oh, oh fantastic. Are you studying or are you there on some kind of a... 
Oh no, I'm a I, I'm a visiting fellow or whatever. Ah, uh, right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Science Johns Hopkins. I'm just sort of on sabbatical, as it were. How did you become the uh, the person who is uh, an expert on democracies and the the ability of human beings to get along? Um, how did I become that person? Um, I was in grad school. I was uh, uh, doing political theories, so I was writing a PhD thesis on um, how to think about luck and responsibility in the welfare state. Uh, so topics that are pretty far away from that. And I was just struck by the way in which populism was rising in Europe and in other countries. And people sort of assumed, you know, they, they talked about it, they worried about it, but within constraints, right? They worried about it like, oh, that's kind of annoying and and sort of, you know, like these, these political forces are kind of, you know, concerning, but but of course they'll never be in power, right? Of course they'll never actually win. Of course they'll never actually be able to transform the country. And I just sort of thought, well, why? You know, we we we, we see the support continuing to rise, um, and there was these other signs of trouble in the political system, of people being pretty unhappy with governments, uh, participating less in the political system. Um, you know, these these political parties in Europe that used to have mass membership, um, uh, you know, really having dwindling engagement from the general public. And I thought perhaps these are all signs of something. And so I sat down with, with my friend, Roberto Foa, who taught in uh, Australia for a while, actually, um, and looked at some data, not about how people feel about governments, but how we feel about democracy, how we feel about the democratic system. And it turned out that um, they were getting much more critical, much more disillusioned, much more open to alternatives to it. And so we published some mm-hmm. research about that. Um, and that sort of went viral, and, and that was the beginning of me being an expert on the topic, I suppose. Did what is what makes the system democratic? What makes the system democratic? Um, I, I ask because uh, because I, when I, I'm sometimes skeptical about those surveys, and I want, and maybe you can flesh it out better for me. Because if I said to my friends, "Do you care more about?" Uh, the freedom to do what you want and everyone being treated equitably and fairly, or do you care about being able to vote? Then most of them probably would say, no, I mean, if all of those other things were held constant, then I don't, I wouldn't care about voting. In which case you could say, ah, the young people these days, they don't care about democracy. But of course, democracy involves more than just voting. They vote in Russia, they vote in Iran, they vote in all kinds of places which are not democracies. So what are we talking about? Yeah, of course. And if you, you know, so I think it it actually does make sense to distinguish between two basic aspirations of our political system. Um, So one is uh, collective self-determination, right? There's some mechanism by which we ourselves decide how we're governed rather than letting some, uh, you know, priest or or general, um, you know, king do that. Um, and that's the sort of voting element, or that's the way we, we, we try to accomplish that goal, uh, you know, in modern representative democracies is through voting for representatives. Um, and then there's uh, the element of individual liberty, um, that we actually want to be able to decide on our own what to say and who to worship, whoever to worship, what kind of relationships to have, who to have stay over for dinner or stay over after dinner. And, um, you know, those two things don't necessarily have to go together. Right, you could have a majoritarian political system in which a majority decides you're not allowed to play this kind of music, you're not allowed to mm. have that kind of sexual orientation, and there's some examples of that. So, I think you're right that there's sort of good reason to think. Well, what do we care most about? Is it the the, the element of collective 
self-determination or is it individual liberty or is it just simply government performance, right? Is it simply making sure you live in a place where, um, you know, you know that you're going to be able to eat dinner and have affluence rather than a place where, um, you know, you, you, you're really worried about being able to feed yourself. So, mm. so all of that is fair. But the kinds of surveys we looked at, though, um, didn't put those into competition, right? And so it said, how important is it to, to live in a democracy? And it turns out the number of people who say it's important to them has really gone down. Um, it asks things like, uh, uh, how do you feel about army rule? And so uh, a minority of people uh, uh, believe that's a good idea, as they did in the past. The number of people who say that that would be a good idea has really gone up, especially uh, among among young people, actually. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, you can try to tell some story with a person saying, well, if we had army rule and everything would be miraculously 10 times better, um, but that's not what the question asked, right? If they're saying, right. hey, army rule is a good idea, it's because they're thinking there's something wrong with the democratic system and we can only get good outcomes if we get rid of it and embrace these kind of authoritarian alternatives. It's interesting that you split apart those two components of collective self-determination on the one hand and then personal freedom on the other, because is there more than one way of articulating a collective self-determination? Is there more than one way for the demos to express its will? I had a, a talkback caller on my radio show recently and she was saying that she can't believe how undemocratic our societies are because she's remembering we were talking about black swan events unexpected things we were talking and she said the iraq war she said before the iraq war when there were people marching in the street all over the world the biggest rallies in sydney and london uh and in the united states and nonetheless our leaders continued to persist with that policy she said that she couldn't believe that we could be so undemocratic and i said well, I mean, it's not undemocratic in the sense that those governments knew that they were going to face the, the voters at the next election and they would be judged on that. And she was making the point that, but yeah, they're going to be judged on a whole range of different things, possibly up against another party that also sucks in its own unique way. And if people are expressing themselves through some protest like that, that needs to be heeded. Like, are those acts of collect collective self-determination valid? And if they're like that almost gets up to a question of should we be voting and, uh, you know, having more say in more things than just Tweedledum or Tweedledee every three, four or five years? Well, let me speak to to a specific question and a broader question. I think the specific question, you know, you always have to distinguish between a very motivated and very visible minorities of activists and the opinion of a majority. Now, by the way, in 2003, I was in the street in London protesting against the Iraq war. I was against the war at the time. I continued to be against it. I thought it was a very bad idea. Um, but as I recall, at least in the United States and the United Kingdom, which were two crucial countries making the decision, uh, there was majorities in favor of a war at the time. So in the United States, I think there was a clear majority in favor. And in the UK, I think the polls uh, oscillated more. And I think there were less clear cut. But, but mm. I seem Not to sure about the UK and, and Australia. Definitely the US. I'm, I thought that in the U, in the UK and Australia, it was, well, I suppose it probably depended <laughs> at what moment you, you polled people and exactly how. But if it was, it was razor, it was razor thin if it existed at all. Yeah. So again, I, I don't want to speak, you know, I, this is sort of the vague memory I have from, you know, uh, nearly 20 years ago. But, but I believe that at the point at which the UK entered the war, there was actually, at least in some polls, a narrow majority in favor of it, right? So but this is an important point, right? I mean, there's this tendency we sometimes have in deeply divided societies, especially to say, 
you know, wow, the government is undemocratic because nobody I know voted for this guy. Well, yeah, but it's because you live in a particular kind of bubble, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And of course, you can have an effect on social media. You can have, you know, you just follow people who agree with you. Most people mostly follow people that agree with them. I mean, I do too. Um, and so you can have a sense of like, well, we all agreed that this should happen. You know, if that's not what's happening, it must be undemocratic. It must be that people are going against what we want. And so I, I just think it's important to sort of um, uh, check ourselves and be a little bit careful not to fall foul to that bias. Now, sure. Um, now, to ask your question, to answer your question, in perhaps in a profound way. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, democracy promises the rule of the people, and we have a very particular kind of way of trying to bring about that outcome, and it involves, uh, you know, voting for parties or political candidates um, every, uh, you know, six or five or four or two years, depending on where you are, um, and then we rely on both the fact that sort of, you know, we pick the team that seems closer to our preferences, and then they have a reason to listen to public opinion because they need to win re-election. Um, but that has real limits, right? They might say, hey, once we're in office, we're just going to do something different from what we're promising because we're not so motivated by re-election. Um, uh, we just want to put through those policies that for whatever ideological or, or, or non-ideological reason we care about. Um, uh, and as you're saying, you know, you, you get a real bundle of policies. So you might be somebody who's very socially liberal and economically conservative or very economically liberal and socially conservative those voters exist and especially in two-party systems um that means you have to choose between you know a, a, a party who deeply disagree with on economic issues and a party who deeply disagree with on social and cultural issues and and you know that's it that's that's a choice you've got to make um you know when you go back to ancient democracies uh, those very different right the idea there was that citizens would assemble uh, in Athens in particularly um, and read debate about politics um, uh, uh, in a much more concrete way. They had the right as an assembly to declare war, to appoint generals, to censor Democrats, to, to censor generals, to, to banish them um, if you felt like uh, it was their fault that you didn't win the war and so on. So it was much, much more extreme involvement in politics. But of course, and by the way, the, the, the right essay to read on this is by a 19th century French political theorist called Benjamin Constant. He has a beautiful essay called The Liberty of the Ancients Compared to That of the Moderns. And it really helps you understand ancient democracy. It really helps you also to understand the nature of modern democracy. And what he points out is that that was beautiful and, and really meaningful, but there was also problems with that. Um, it only works if you have a very, very small citizenry. Um, because otherwise people are just not going to be motivated to participate in politics that much. You're going to get less out of politics in a nation of 20 million or 200 million than you do in a nation of eight, 9,000 citizens. Um, mm. It took an enormous amount of time. So it was only possible because most Athenian citizens had uh, uh, other people do their work for them, including often slaves. Um, and it only worked because they were in a quite poor society. And so the other kinds of demands on the time, the other kind of distractions, the other kind of luxuries they might engage in, uh, weren't all of that tempting. And I think, you know, when you tell people in Australia or the United States or, you know, Italy or Germany today, you're going to spend all of your time debating politics. Um, you know, uh, this is going to be the majority of your life. Uh, we're going to be much poorer, um, uh, you know, they don't want that, and they don't want that for good reason. Um, uh, and, of course, the other thing about, about the ancient democracies is that 
they did not have the individual freedoms we take for granted. Benjamin Constant says in a really beautiful line that uh, one musician in, in Sparta had to uh, seek permission from the censors and didn't get it uh, to add a string to his lyre. That's just to say, if he just wanted to change <laughs> the design of a musical instrument a little bit, that would change the melodies and the rhythms of society and its culture, and that might bring instability. And so that was a decision for the relevant office holders of a majority to make. You couldn't just do that on your own. So mm. that's not the kind of society you want to live in. Um, so, so Sounds I think like trying to case. repaint your house in a particularly heritage-listed part of England. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, um, so I think there's good reasons um, why we don't want the kind of direct democracy that, that the ancients have. But, but I've started to wonder whether there's ways of recreating that. Um, I've come to agree with a line that I'd rather be ruled by the first 100 people in the Cambridge Telephone book than the assembled Harvard faculty. I think often... Uh, you know, political elites, including intellectual elites. Uh, and I, you know, as a professor at a fancy university, I, I, I realize I'm, I'm one of that set. Um, uh, don't often get things more right than ordinary people. And, and there are some ways of trying to have really random political representation. So in Ireland, when there was a big debate about abortion, they had a citizens' assembly in which they chose 100 Irish citizens um, through, you know, by lot, essentially, and had them prepare a law, which was then voted on in a referendum. And that was a very helpful process, a very healthy process, which I think came up with mm. reasonable compromise that won a big majority in the referendum. Um, and I do wonder whether we can use elements of that kind of autocracy, use elements of uh, appointing certain office holders by lot, as we do for juries, um, uh, in a different way today. That's very interesting. I mean, it does remind me when you articulate what the 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 Athenian situation was with people gathering in the agora and and hashing things out. Of course, we do still have that in the sense that our parliaments were supposed to be a way of just delegating that responsibility to other people, right? I mean, they would, it, we the idea that our parliaments would be inhabited by career politicians who spend their entire lives doing deals with each other and lobbyists and powerful people to try to entrench their power was not really the way that things were supposed to work. We were supposed to just say, hey, Joe down the road has a lot of good ideas. Why don't we get, why don't we send him and get him to be our representative because we're all too busy to be making those democratic decisions for ourselves? Well, there's two differences. So one is that, um, you know, late 18th century America, for example, um, uh, both the population of a country was low enough. Uh, and of course, you know, the people who were actually allowed to take part in the political system were sufficiently restricted that there was an idea that you'd vote for sort of local notables um, who you know probably in person or at least by reputation, right? So there was a sense of we would get these really high quality, uh, decent human beings who have the deep support of a community, right? The people where you'd say, well, you know, you can always count on this person. He's reasonable, mm. you know, let's send him. Um, but I think the, and that's changed because of the scale of, 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 of modern societies and because the enfranchisement of more and more people, which is obviously an, uh, an incredibly good thing, um, uh, but, but it makes that kind of notable model simply obsolete. Um, I think there's, there's, there's a more important difference, though. If you look at the Constitution uh, of the United States, certainly, but, but but of a good number of countries. And when you compare to the actual functioning of our society today, the one thing you're missing is political parties. 
Right? Mm. Political parties are, are the fundamental modern political institutions that uh, aren't really imagined in most uh, in most constitutions. I mean, I'd say it only takes about 10 years for political parties to form. Um, but when a country is founded, people don't assume that there's going to be this really strong loyalty to uh, you know, the leader of a political faction in that kind of way. Um, and, and that changes things in much more concerning ways. A, it undermines the purpose of parliaments, which is to deliberate, right? The idea when you read the founding fathers of the United States, when you read Edmund Burke, when he holds a speech as he's standing for parliament in Bristol in the um, uh, really early 19th century, they're saying the point of parliament is not just to be these sort of bearers of interest. And it's not just to represent what people want, by the way. It is to come together and actually deliberate about what's in the interest of a common good, of a greater good of a nation. Um, and, uh, you know, the rise of very ideological political parties um, that see each other as rivals at best and often as enemies um, just, just, just has undermined that to a significant extent, right? When you go to Washington, D.C. today, mm-hmm. there just is very little exchange of arguments um, in a genuine spirit where you think if I come up with a good point, then the other side might actually incorporate that in a sensible way. Um, and, and, and so the political parties have undermined what was supposed to be the problem of faction. Right? So what the founding fathers do think about is every attempt at self-government in, in history is eventually fails because you have these factions battling each other, right? The cap, the, I mean, this is not in a democracy, but the the Montagues and the Capulets, right? It's pretty typical of the kind of factions you get in Italian city-states in, in the Middle Ages that just hate each other and battle each other and, and up to civil war and the destruction of a republic till some monarch arises. Um, and so the founding fathers were really worried about that. And, and the answer they gave to that is, let's make the country so big and let's make it so free that you get such a cacophony of voices that no faction ever thinks they can rule. You always have to find these compromises and, and argue for the common good. But in America today, we don't have a hundred or a thousand factions as they envisage. We have two factions, Democrats and Republicans, mm. not super representative of what people actually want. A lot of people are frustrated with being squeezed into those two factions. But when you look at what's actually going on in Washington, D.C., we don't have a hundred factions. We have two factions. And that's exactly what the founding fathers were concerned about. In another respect, of course, we have... 300 and however many million factions uh, all uh, wanting their own individual things and, you know, a society that respects the the liberty of the individual is one in one that has to be sort of large enough, capacious enough in its understanding of how to fulfil the desires of all of those people uh, to keep them knitted together. And, I mean, this sort of brings us to to your specialty, which is, I suppose, populism and tribalism and the way that we all bump into, e- into each other. There's a growing sense on the right in Europe, in, in the, far, the rise of the far right in Europe, in the alt-right in America and Trumpism, and it has its echoes all over the place, that the, I don't know, the fracturing of a common culture, the demise of agreed upon Judeo-Christian traditions and norms, uh, the importation of other cultures from abroad are putting too many strains on our ability to conceive of ourselves as a, a common people with a common mission. And it's, uh, it's, all, it's all splitting asunder. Uh, what do you make of that critique? 
Um, yeah, so there's, you know, so two different ways in which, uh, you know, so, so I think you are right that there's this odd tension between we have two political parties and they pretend to stand for everybody. That's obviously mostly true in political systems that have uh, something like first past the post, that have majoritarian political systems, right, where a district um, or constituency is won by the person who has the most votes, which puts a lot of pressure on voters not to waste the vote, right? You might, there might mm. be some third or fourth or fifth party, some tiny party that you feel like really represents what you think. But since you know that voting for them is unlikely to get the candidate elected, most people say, well, I'll vote for one, the candidate of one or two major parties because that way at least I keep the people I really dislike out of office. So that's why countries like uh, the United States and Australia and Britain tend to end up um, with with few political parties and mostly with two political parties. Yeah, although we don't actually we don't actually have first past the post. We have preferential a preferential system, which I hear talked about in America a lot. I can't remember what they call it uh, there. There's some American term for it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, is it? Well, describe the describe the system for me. Oh, d- ballot. They call it um, ranked. They call it ranked choice voting. So it it is still it, so it, the oh, system. Yeah, that's... you number you, you allocate a number in order of preferences, and then whoever gets knocked out has the right. Then your your next preference goes bouncing up. So your vote is never wasted by voting for a minor party, which means that we do have a Greens party and we do have small minor parties, but nonetheless, it's not, so it's not as bad as it is in the US and the UK, but we don't right. have what you have in, for example, Germany, where you actually have a fully, it's not a proportional representation. But it's still a majoritarian political system, right? Like you have yes, a specific right. constituency and that specific constituency has one MP um, who yes. won because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, with the exception um, of the fact that we have a Senate like the United States, but the the lower house is is more akin to the House of Commons in the UK. But yeah, it's a sort of a Washminster system we call it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's sort of a variation on a majoritarian political system, which does, as you as you say, sort of solve the problem of a wasted vote a little bit, but still pushes people towards um, uh, towards a two party system. It's sort of yeah to a lesser extent. Um, but it's very different from a system of proportional representation, right? Where yes, that's right. Um, you know, if you if you if you have a political party standing nationwide and you get seven percent of a vote, then roughly speaking, seven percent of the votes in parliament are going to go to that party, right? Whereas exactly, in the system you're right. talking yes, about, not that. You're if seven percent of people vote for you in the first right. round, you're going to get eliminated, um, and you know, perhaps if vote isn't wasted, so they'll look at the second preference. Um, but it still sort of pushes people towards the main political forces. Correct, um, yes. Um, so anyway, but even if you have, say, five or six political parties, right, um, uh, you know, then you have just this huge variety in society. And that variety, I think, comes from two different sources. Um, one source of it is um, actually technological, I think. Um, you know, it used to be the case that we have a few uh, TV channels, uh, a few newspapers, um, and that, you know, to have an identity, political or otherwise, you really needed to agree with millions of people, right? You had an identity as a worker or perhaps as as, as a Protestant or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Jew. Um, you know, within schools, you might have had four or five identities as sort of, you know, I mean, the American high school movie, right, as the jock or as the you know, nerd or as the theater kid or something like that. But, um, you know, there was a limit because you needed to have a lot of people who are like you in order to be able to sustain a real strand of of, of culture. 
Um, and I think what's happened because of the rise of the internet and of social media, in particular, the ability to um, uh, you know, tag yourself, to find the people nationwide or worldwide who happen to share very specific interests or views, is just a huge proliferation in how people identify. So that some people now identify um, you know, as, as uh, vegans uh, in a very strong way that wouldn't have been the case earlier. Or some people identify as, um, you know, through a fandom, through some uh, anime. Um, uh, or some people might identify very strongly with uh, a sexual orientation, which is not just being you know, straight or gay or lesbian or perhaps trans, but, um, you know, a much more sort of variegated sexual and much more specific. Because rather than saying, hey, you know, if I want an identity, but I need friends who sort of share that identity. Um, and in my school, there's only so many people. And so, you know, that sort of puts a minimum limit on what kind of identity is viable. I can say, well, there's millions and millions of people on the Internet. And as long as I find, you know, 500,000 people somewhere in the world who share that identity, that can create, that can allow us to co-create that kind of culture. And so I think in an odd way, society has become much more kaleidoscopic um, uh, as a result, with, with these really strongly held identities um, uh, and a la much larger number of them than in the past. And that makes it hard to then project that variety onto those two political parties, perhaps in some kinds of five or six political parties. How are these parties supposed to cater to these you know, hundreds and thousands of different identities? I think that's a fundamental political problem that our technological moment presents us with. The other problem that you've alluded to is really the, the subject of, of my last book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And that's that you know, most democracies in the world have historically functioned in one of two ways. Um, either they were pretty diverse, as the United States and Canada were since their founding, um, but they had a very strict racial and religious hierarchy in which one group that was reasonably homogeneous dominated politics and culture. Um, or uh, you had societies that were actually pretty homogeneous, um, as many Western European societies were, um, uh, certainly in the wake of World War II. Um, and so then you said, look, we just have this uh, set of people who agree mostly on religion, who agree mostly on um, the kind of ancestry they have, who've built a pretty thick culture together over time. And, uh, uh, you know, that helps to keep certain kinds of cultural and other conflicts to a minimum. Um, what we've got now uh, is a great experiment, a unique experiment, something that is uh, historically unprecedented, um, uh, but you know, we sort of stumbled into in a way, which is these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies that are actually trying to treat the members as equals, not always succeeding, there's much progress to be made there, uh, but, but, but certainly uh, don't say we have a clear hierarchy and you know, if you're not part of this group, you know, we don't care. We, we're trying to give everybody the same rights, uh, the same participation in our culture and, and politics and so on. Um, and so that's another sort of source of uh, great diversity, a source of, uh, 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 and, and therefore sometimes also a source of tension and, and, and contestation and conflict. Yeah, what are the roadblocks there? Because, I, I mean, and, I, and maybe they're different in countries that are new versus countries that are old. Um, Australia was formerly a white country. Uh, I mean, formally in both sense, formerly and also formally a white country. And then 
after the Second World War needed a lot of labor and sort of gradually started fudging the definitions of whiteness to include Greeks and Italians and then so on. And then uh, that was abolished in the 60s. And since then, has been completely transformed and is now more multi-ethnic. I mean, with the exception of, of Mexicans and black Americans, in comparison to America, is more multi-ethnic than the United States even. And more than half the population has arrived since World War II. One in five households don't speak English at, at home. Uh, you know, three of the top five countries that come to where people come to Australia from are in Asia, Vietnam, China, and India. And it's been, I think touch wood, quite successful at being able to incorporate these very large numbers of, of very diverse communities with seemingly less of the pushback and less of the scapegoating than I hear from my friends in European countries, especially France, where I have family, where there seems to be more friction. And I wonder what you attribute that friction to. Yeah. Um, so a couple of points. First is, it, it, you know, the transformation of some of the societies we're talking about is really, uh, you know, striking, um, including some societies that uh, outsiders don't yet think of as uh, typical examples of that form of deep diversity, right? So people realize that the United States and Canada are deeply diverse countries. They sort of understand that Britain is to some extent and perhaps but France has had a lot of immigration from North Africa and so on. Um, but you know, places like Sweden uh, or Denmark or Norway were very, very homogeneous 50 years ago. I mean, some of the most homogeneous mm. societies on earth um, and now are very diverse. I think well over 20% of people living in Sweden today were born outside of a country. Most of them are you know, not neighboring European countries, but, 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 but stem from much further away. And Australia, as you're pointing out, I think is, is an example of a society that is just fundamentally transformed in those kind of demographic terms over the course of uh, a few reasonably short decades. Um, and so we should recognize that we don't really have much precedent for what that looks like and for how to make that work. Um, so the second point, let me sort of talk you through some of the deeper psychological and historical reasons why I think that does create some challenges that we should take seriously in order to be able to make them work. Um, and so the first challenge to me is, is, is just simply psychological, right? Um, I have um, you know, students who are very diverse, who come from all over the world, certainly from every ethnicity, um, and who think of themselves as the most tolerant people in the world, people who would never sort of uh, you know, say, my group is more important than your group and so on. Um, but when I ask them at the beginning of a lecture class um, whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, and, and you know, they, they look at me a little confused and befuddled and it's like, why, why are we talking about hot dogs? And when we get into the debate, you know, and there's always passionate people on each side of the debate, uh, and I let them have some fun for five or ten minutes. And when I have them uh, play a simple distribution game where they have to decide essentially whether they want to give a little bit more money to the other side of the argument, but come out with a nice little stash of cash themselves, or whether they would rather penalize everybody, including themselves, take home less money themselves, just to make sure that they get more money than you know, these other idiots who think that a hot dog is a sandwich, but a hot dog is not a sandwich. <laughs> and what do they do? They discriminate against the other group. They'd rather take home less money themselves just to make sure that, you know, these assholes who think that a hot dog is a sandwich don't get more money. Um, and 
you know, that shows a really fundamental aspect of human beings, which is that they're, they're groupish, right? We are, we have a deep tendency to form groups at the drop of a hat, essentially, um, to treat the members of our own groups very well under certain circumstances with incredible courage and altruism. Um, but also to have indifference, and sometimes much worse than indifference, towards members of the other group. And we just always have to think about how to manage that fundamental human instinct, because it'll always be a big part of social reality. So that's one difficulty. The, the second difficulty is that you can get this going over anything. You can get this going over whether well, a hot dog is a sandwich. Um, but we know from history that there are some kinds of dimensions of ascriptive identity in particular that are especially motivating. Um, so many of the worst, you know, crimes, many of the worst wars and civil wars and forms of genocide and, and ethnic cleansing in history have pitted members of one, uh, uh, you know, ethnic, religious, sometimes linguistic uh, uh, group against another. That's, 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 you know, many of the worst uh, uh, catastrophes of human history. Um, and then third, by the way, you know, democracy, that voting mechanism we talked about, you would hope would make things easier and better, um, but it doesn't necessarily. Because if you think of a kind of traditional, you know, multinational empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, or something like that, people might have said, look, I don't really have any political power. You don't really have any political power, um, you know, but as long as we kind of trust the monarch to be tolerant towards each of us, it doesn't matter to me if you have more kids than I do, if your group is growing more quickly than, than mine is, if more immigrants are coming in who look like you rather than me, right? In uh, a democracy, you're always searching for a majority. That's the nature of the electoral mechanism. Right, you're trying to build a majority. And if I feel like I used to be in the majority, my group, my ethnic group, my cultural group, whatever it may be, used to be in the majority. But now your group is growing more quickly than, than mine is because there's more immigrants coming in who look like you or you have more children, whatever it is. Hang on a second. Suddenly, you know, I, I have a power now, but I might be in the minority tomorrow. I and mean, then you might have overpower and that might be a disaster for me. So, you know, perhaps I need to stop this. And, and so this creates these really deep fears um, that have been exploited with conspiracy theories like the idea of a great replacement and so on. But that's a big part of our politics today, right? These dwindling majorities sort of, sort of being fearful of what might happen when the demographic composition of a country changes. And so we take these three points together, the tendency to be groupish, the, the power of you know, ethnic, religious, linguistic divisions in particular to um, uh, inspire this kind of uh, hatred of the outgroup, and the fact that the electoral mechanism of democracy actually aggravates this. And you see why some of this is difficult, why, um, uh, you know, there's real contestation around the demographic changes we've had over the last uh, decades. Now, I think here's mm. the good news, which is, uh, and we can go more into that, I think we're doing much better than many people are thinking. We're doing much better than people on the far right of, uh, uh, say we are. But I think actually we're doing better in many respects than many of my friends who are on the left or, or who are more politically moderate. Uh, are thinking as well, um, and I think Australia is 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 one example of that. I know I've been talking for a long time, but let me let me ask answer the last part of a question you posed, which is why is Australia uh -huh. doing better than many other countries? I think it has a pretty straightforward reason. Because the other country that's doing pretty well is Canada, and Canada and Australia have 
um, uh, uh, something in common was a kind of cheat code. Um, you know, they have that they don't have they have very strong control over who comes into the country, in part because of a geographical location, and they have chosen, understandably, to prioritize high skill immigrants. Um, and for a variety of reasons, I think it's just easier to integrate people when they come to the country um, of their own free volition. They're not fleeing some terrible war by and large, but they're deciding to uproot themselves for a better life. So they choose the country they want to go to. Um, they come with a high educational standard. They usually come already speaking the language because that's one of the conditions of being able to get uh, most of those immigrant visas. Um, and so I think you know, you're doing very well, but I'm afraid to say you're, you're playing on easy mode. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the the playing on easy mode is uh, is is not a, an accident, uh, is not happenstance. Uh, you know, the, the there was a, a Faustian pact made in Australia that we needed lots and lots more people and the way to convince reticent, enough reticent people that you weren't going to get a pushback against immigration was to make them feel like we have control over the borders and to make them feel like we're choosing to do this. I mean, I think one of the great dysfunctions of America's immigration policy, without which Donald Trump would never have become president, is that the left has seemed to lose track of the possibility of having a generous immigration policy that is also functional. In other words, like I, from the perspective of an Australian, I've never understood why it is necessarily racist to build a wall between America and Mexico. I understand that in practice, that build the wall jingoistic chant is used by people who also happen to be xenophobic. But in principle, I don't see any reason why it is xenophobic to say that America should be taking more people from Bangladesh or Zimbabwe and fewer people from Mexico, why Mexico gets special treatment uh, just because it happens to be next door. Uh, I mean, a, a sane immigration policy could be very pro-immigrant, could be xenophilic, uh, could be very welcoming, and could also have secure borders, which is what Australia's is, and we have the good fortune to be surrounded by a lot of water, but nonetheless have also made these uh, difficult moral uh, choices, many of which I object to because I think they're too harsh, like locking up you know, refugees on desert islands in the Pacific in perpetuity simply to, as a warning to other people not to come by boat. But the case can be made that if that is the price that has to be paid karmically and morally to have 25 million people all supportive of one of the highest humanitarian uh, like uh, resettlement rates in the world and of very, very high rates of, as you say, highly skilled immigration as well, then maybe that's a, maybe that's a price worth, worth paying. Um, why are people on the left? I mean, you say that you know, right-wingers think that democracy is, is sick, but many of your colleagues on the left do as, as well. I mean, yeah, in my experience, my colleagues on the left are actually more pessimistic than I think the right-wingers. I think they think the whole edifice of democracy is falling apart. And I'm not sure where that comes from or what you would say to them. Uh, well, let me go back to, to the immigration question for a second because I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I want to get to the other one as well, of course. Um, uh, you, you know, one of the most fascinating polls I've seen in the last few years, this was perhaps in 2017, 2018, is that there was a clear majority in a poll for building uh, a wall on the southern border 
But this was a poll in Mexico, and it was a majority of Mexicans who wanted to build a wall on the southern border of Mexico. Um, Mm. So, you know, the politics of this are much more complicated than people think. And by the way, one of the huge problems in America is this sort of, uh, you know, triumphant narrative of a Democratic Party who think that all, quote-unquote, people of color are somehow metaphysically the same category and are always going to vote in lockstep. And we're seeing, um, you know, that there's many so-called Latinos from Mexico who don't want immigration to their country from uh, other countries in Central America that are poorer and so on uh, than Mexico is. Um, So, you know, I think you're right that often the instinct to just label things racist and sort of have that be the end of a discussion obscures these really interesting dynamics and divisions that are going on underneath the surface. Um, you know, Walls is somebody who grew up in, in, in Germany, not so far from the Berlin Wall, always a particular stomachache for me. And 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 um I do have uh, uh you know I'm 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 not a big fan of the idea, but more broadly, um I agree with you um that uh, uh you know what those of us who think that actually some level of immigration is good and healthy uh, should be doing is to tell people, hey, we are democracy we are going to have the immigration levels that people actually want. We're going to listen to what the, the citizens are telling us, because if we don't, then eventually we're going to vote for, you know, really nasty politicians like Donald Trump, uh, uh, who they trust to, 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 to finally do the job that everybody else refuses to. So that's one, one thing we should do. Yeah. The other thing we should do, I think, is that we should show very strongly that we have control of our borders, because as you are pointing out with the case of Australia, uh, that is the precondition under which you can win the democratic debate to say, hey, um, you know, we should have uh, immigrants who can contribute a lot to our society. And by the way, um, uh, you know, when people are generally fleeing for their lives um, and they might die unless we admit them in a temporary way, then we should be admitting uh, refugees as well. I think you can win those arguments with good moral, uh, uh, you know, case that you can make. If people have the feeling that the politicians are honest about their intentions and that they're willing to, uh, you know, do what it takes for the country to actually make those decisions in a meaningful way. Now, here's the basic problem, folks, right? Huge majorities of people in every country want control of a border. Huge majorities in every country also object when the government does really, really cruel things. Um, and one of the, uh, you know, and, and that is just a, set of policies that is very hard to have at the same time because when people are desperate enough they are willing to go to extreme lengths to escape their countries and to go somewhere where they'll have more opportunity and so on and so it often takes pretty extreme cruelty to keep them out so um you know the devil here is in the details and how you maintain real control over your borders um, without engaging in the kind of cruelty that, for good reason, most people find objectionable, um, is is not a trivial problem to solve in practice. But I think, in 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 in, in sort of at least in broad outlines, the policy should clearly be, um, you know, have clear control of your borders, um, uh, uh, take seriously the expressed democratic preference of your citizens, but make the case for the kind of immigration that either. Uh, is really healthy for for your own country, or is just required for deeply compelling moral reasons, uh, like uh, you know people fleeing a terrible war as they might be in Ukraine. Mm. Yes, I mean, uh, and I should say when I when I say that I don't have a, a problem with 
building a wall. There are so many things you can do before you need to get to building a physical wall that the US isn't doing that for me, the wall is a sort of a moot point or a distraction. I mean, you could just enforce employment law and put proper, put proper fines on companies that hire uh, illegal workers. You're not supposed to call them illegal workers. You're supposed to call them undocumented persons or whatever, but you know, they're workers who are working there illegally. And that this is done with the tacit agreement of, of industry and of uh, captains of, uh, of business and politicians. I mean, if you just, if you just seriously required people to have proper ID and if you, you've made, you've fixed up some of the holes in the social security number, uh, distribution system in the United States so that there was greater employer verification and, and companies that got around it were effectively fined so much that they were sent out of business, then very quickly the problem would go away because people wouldn't be able to get illegal jobs and you wouldn't need to build a wall in the first and, place. And by the way, so, you know, Mitt Romney, who, uh, you know, I, I wasn't yet a citizen in 2012, I would not have voted for him. I would have voted without hesitating for, for Barack Obama. Um, but he was talking about that in 2012. He was saying... Yeah. You know the way to to deal with with this problem is to have much much stricter um, enforcement of employment law and to punish very heavily companies who uh, employ undocumented migrants and that's just going to reduce the demand for people to come into the country because they're not going to be able um, to to reap the kind of economic benefits that they understandably they're they hoping for. Um, yeah, I mean all the, and, and all... this should be a lesson. Uh, you know, the response to that should be a lesson to to Democrats because. You know, they uh, really, really tarred Mitt Romney as a racist and as a, as a horrible and cruel person uh, uh, for that set of policies. And then what do they get the next time around? They got Donald Trump, um, who's who's the real deal. Um, mm. So, you know, we need to be able, wherever you stand on 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 a proposal like that, to to discuss that kind of policy in good faith and without impugning the motives of the other person. Because otherwise, um, uh, uh, you know, you're just creating an incentive for your opposition to become more and more extreme and for ordinary people to say, you know what, I think what Romney suggested is pretty reasonable. And if you're saying he's racist for suggesting that, then I guess you're saying I'm racist. So you just look down on me. Screw you. Next time I'm going to vote for a bomb thrower like Donald Trump. Yeah, and for pointing out these cultural dynamics, you get accused of being an anti-immigrant, which means that you're also racist, which means that you're a proto-fascist uh, by swathes of the left. How does one recapture, and I mean, so so do I, for having these, these kinds of conversations in the first place, um, is there a centre ground to be recaptured? Because all I see is, I suppose, the old... I think it was David Frum who coined the term that if uh, you know if, if liberal if small l liberals don't uh, don't secure borders, then fascists will, uh, because people ultimately are going to want to have some control over their over their country. But again, for pointing that out, that that supposedly makes you a fascist yourself. Is there a way to capture the centre ground on which small l liberals can stand? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the bad news is that. If you depart from a very narrow range of uh, opinions or views of language or of policies, when somebody on social media is going to, you know, denounce you or, or as a racist or a bigot or a sexist or a transphobe or, a, you know, a million other things. Um, and, and that is generally scary to, to a lot of people for good reason, um, in, yeah, mostly because all of those are... Uh, adjectives um, that I abhor, 
um, right? I mean, the last thing I want to be in the world is 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 a racist or a transphobe because um, you know I I am a tolerant person and I want people to thrive irrespective of the, the, the ethnic origin or the gender identity. And so, you know, of course I'm horrified when, when somebody says that, or when somebody insinuates that. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that those are the voices of very few and very extreme people and who are not representative of those groups, right? Um, and so, you know, yeah, I'm in a weird position where, um, you know, some people on social media say, uh, you know, essentially insinuate that, um, you know, I'm some kind of a bigot. And then at the same time, you know, Barack Obama, a politician who I greatly admire, um, and of course, the first black president of the United States, um, recommended that uh, people read my book on this topic on democracy and diversity um, on his on his reading list this summer, right? So I think part of it is just you, you, you know, as a writer, you have no excuse. As a writer, you just have to have a stomach. Um, you know, my job is to tell the truth. Um, you know, it, it, my job is to write things that are true and interesting. Um, uh, it doesn't matter whether they're convenient or not. If they're true and boring, I don't write them. I mean, you know, today, you know, <laughs> it's vaguely, you know, it's drizzling. That's not a very interesting <laughs> sentence. I'm not going to write that. But if it's true and interesting, I'm going to write it without thinking too much what, what, what Twitter says about me. That's, that's, that's my job. And I think writers who fail at that job should look for other work. Now, I'm not going to be as harsh about ordinary people, because what I completely understand is people who say, look, you know, I'm a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or a teacher and, uh, you know, or, or perhaps somebody in the artistic field where some of those constraints are very strong. You know, I'm an actor or a painter. And politics is not my life. You know, I'm interested in politics. I'm disturbed by some things I see. I want to push for an opinion. But you know what? If expressing that opinion, um, you know, risks my life, you know, my livelihood, risks losing me all of these friends, risks, you know, this huge reputational damage, is it really worth it? Perhaps just, you know, shut up and stay out. And I understand that much more. I think as writers, I have, you know, we have no excuse. But, but you know, civilians, um, they don't have to get drawn into the war. And, and it's everybody's choice. But I will say that if you express yourself calmly and carefully, um, and you set out your point of view, um, uh, you'll have as many friends as, as enemies. And, and, and if you, you know, have a stomach, but a couple of people are going to call you nasty words, um, you, you'll also know that, uh, if you're saying something reasonable, most people will actually agree. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, if we all collectively have a courage to, uh, you know, express ourselves on some of those complicated and sensitive issues in a spirit of, uh, charity in a spirit of, um, uh, uh, you know, not shouting, not saying, oh, you asshole, you know, but, but just actually putting forward a, a considered and tolerant point of view that expresses some of our concerns about, you know, parts of how we frame things. Um, you know, things are going to change very quickly. There's power in numbers. I mean, that's very good advice on the on a personal and cultural level. It's less reassuring on a political and public policy level. Because when I see the way that the parties are able to frame things that they disagree with, and when I see what seems to me to be the capture of the parties, I mean, I'm especially talking about the United States here, where the right is enthralled to a bunch of total bullshit uh, around Trump and the election, and it just seems to have careened off into de delusional territory 
And the response on the left has not been to do what you're talking about, to step up and reasonably and rationally and calmly uh, articulate the valid concerns of of the opponents who they could win over, the the Republicans out there in the heartland who are just craving someone who sounds reasonable. Instead, the Democrats just seem to have swung into a whole bunch of, uh, you know, ideas of their own. I mean, just to stick with the one that we've brought up about the wall and immigration, you know, if someone as tolerant and anti-racist as me can feel the jingoism in me being stirred when I hear the unfettered immigration, the unfettered, you know, uh, escalation of people just wandering across the southern border and being able to get whatever job they want after I spent more than a decade in the United States doing everything I needed to do, paying a fortune to a, an immigration attorney, going to all of the stupid meetings at the, at the, with the immigration people, jumping through ridiculous hoops, an enormous amount of time and energy in this Kafkaesque bullshit system so that I could do everything perfectly right and dot every I and cross every T, uh, at paying all of the taxes that I needed to pay and doing all of that. If, you know, I think where the hell do, do, do these, you know, university educated white, politically correct Democrat lefties get off saying that any attempt to enforce immigration law is racism. When I've been through all of that and these people can just come wandering in and, I mean, that is ludicrous. Like you're off the reservation. And I could, we could both sit down and rattle off a dozen different areas on which the left has chosen to take the maximalist possible position when right in front of them is the opportunity to win over heartland voters in the absence of a of a, a sane opposition, and they refuse to do that. They refuse to just meet someone like me halfway and go, "Okay, you're right. This should there are much smarter ways of constructing this, and we probably actually need to make a difference to to clarify in our mind the difference between being anti-immigrant and being opposed." to the completely uh, uncontrolled uh, movement of people across the, the southern border. If you can't even meet me there, then you're not even trying anymore to, to find common ground, which means that you've given up on essentially the third point of that you were talking about earlier that you need in order to, or the, th- the third challenge in stitching together multi-ethnic countries and diverse countries, which is that the majority needs to feel like it's in control. Yeah, look, I mean, when you look in the United States today, the, the weird thing is that uh, you know, Donald Trump is way out of the cultural uh, mainstream of the United States. He, he's not popular. What he says is not popular. Um, uh, you know, a portion of a country generally hates him. A lot of a country uh, just finds him distasteful and too much and unpleasant. Um so it should be very easy to beat him, and it should be very easy to beat him by huge margins. Right. So why are Democrats failing to do that? Well, the, the simple answer is, and I'm not, I don't think they're equivalent. I have no doubt deciding between whether to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Not a hard decision. I know who I'm voting for. <laughs> but, 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 but for a lot of people, they look at Democrats and they say, you all are equally out of a cultural mainstream. You know, you're embracing very extreme positions that are not rooted in reality. And if somebody uh, pushes back against them, if somebody says these are bad ideas, um, then you just say they're a bad human being. 
um, so why should we trust you? Um, you know, and, 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 and if you look down on us in that way, then, you know, I guess I'll, you know, hold my nose and vote for the other guy who at least doesn't seem to hate me in the same way. And, and, and if Democrats don't get a handle on that fundamental dynamic, then we might end up with Trump back in the White House in 2024, even though he's deeply unpopular. Um, and, 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 you know, that I'm, 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 I'm really concerned about. I just want to talk about populism before I let you go. Um, we've seen in recent decades the collapse of democracy in democratic countries, countries that we thought previously were robustly democratic, like Hungary, uh, countries that we had hoped would be more democratic, like Turkey and Thailand. Um, you know, we've seen an acceleration of authoritarianism in China and Russia. We've seen the rise of populist right-wingers like Trump in the United States and the new Italian government. What's going on and how do we stop it? Ah, nice, uh, easy little question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, I think when something really changes, you've got to figure out what change from the background conditions, right? Um, so I sometimes tell the story that originally comes from Bertrand Russell of a chicken on a farm. And, you know, every day the farmer comes and feeds the chicken and gives it some food and the chicken couldn't be happier. He thinks he's, you know, hit the jackpot in life. And the other, the other farm animals say, hey, chicken, you know, be careful. The farmer only seems nice. One day he's going to come and kill you. And the chicken says, well, what on earth are you on about? You know, be nice to me every day. He mutters some encouraging words as he gives me plenty of food. What, what, I should, what should I worry about? And of course, as Russell says, uh, one day the farmer does come to wring the chicken's neck showing that quote, more sophisticated views as to the nature of causation would have been to the chicken's benefit. <laughs> um, so what happened here? Well, we know what happened, right? Uh, the, the chicken needed to be at a certain kind of weight or age in order to fetch a good price at the market. So, uh, you know, the farmer was trying to get it there. And, and once the weight was reached, the behavior changed a lot. So there's sort of scope conditions that govern the behavior. Now, if we look at, you know, these democracies, especially in uh, you know, Western Europe, North America, Australia, and so on, which was very stable for a long time, and then became a lot less stable. Australia still is pretty stable. Um, uh, you know, we want to ask, well, what was true then that isn't true now? How do the scope conditions change? Um, and in my first sort of really big book, The People Versus Democracy, uh, which is about the rise of populism and how to think about it, um, I make... Uh, uh, a few arguments, three arguments about the structural conditions that have changed. And now I would add a fourth one. Um, so the first is about um, economic stagnation, right? From, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of an average American doubles. From 1960 to 1985, it doubles again. And since then, it's been more or less stagnant. Uh, you know, depending on the calculation, it probably went up a little bit. Uh, according to some economists, it hasn't gone up at all for the median American um, but the point is, we're very far from that rapid improvement and transformation in living standards that occurred during the period when democracy was really stable. Um, the, the second point is about the rise of the internet and of social media, right? This obviously fractures the public in the way I was talking about earlier, um, but it also makes it much easier for political newcomers to organize themselves uh, and for people to head 
to to spread sort of uh, you know hatred and 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 sometimes lies on 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 the internet. I don't like the term misinformation, disinformation. By the way, I mean, either it's a lie or <laughs> accurate yeah. about what it is. This, this term misinformation mm. is just sort of can mean anything and everything. But there's actual lies that are spreading on the internet, and that's a problem. Um, the third point is uh, what we've talked about a little bit, what became the, the subject of my subsequent book, The Great Experiment, which is the, the huge rise in ethnic and religious diversity. The fact that uh, what we're trying to do in terms of building equal societies that are that profoundly diverse is historically uh, pretty un- unprecedented. Um, so those are the three things I talked about in the People versus Democracy, and I think they continue to be relevant. They explain a lot of what's going on. But I think there's a fourth thing that I was a little bit blind to and that, that I would now say is equally important. And that is that in, in many countries, you've had you know, a fundamental growth of a 5% or so of a population, perhaps 10% of a population, but of real notables. You know, the, the, the doctors and lawyers and academics and journalists who live in uh, you know, the big cities, um, who are often very affluent, but not necessarily the very richest people in society, um, but they live good lives. Um, and they've created a cultural bubble in which they consume very different media products and, 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 and journalism, um, in which they're much more concentrated in particular neighborhoods than they used to be, um, and, and where they really lose touch from a lot of the rest of society. And start not only to be very influential on the politics of left-wing parties and the ways we've been talking about, um, but also to have real disdain for ordinary citizens. And this is stronger in some countries than in others. Perhaps with mateship in, in, in Australia, it's not as strong as it is in the United States, for example. But I'm consistently surprised um, about the way in which friends and acquaintances and colleagues of mine who are decent people, you know, um, and who think of themselves as very moral people, just have a fundamental instinct to look down on the average citizens, just have the assumption that the average American is just a bad, you know, bigoted human being. And the mm. truth of the matter is in a democracy, that really matters. Because the one thing that nobody's ever going to do, do is to vote for somebody who they feel votes down on them. If you can avoid voting somebody who you feel like that person, you know, they came into my house and I talked to them like I talked to my friends and I looked around, they'd say, well, that's a bad, that's a bigoted person. You know, why would I vote for that person? And I think that's one of the things, sadly, that's driving a lot of voters who should be winnable, who are not bad human beings into the arms of people like Donald Trump. Mm. All right. Uh, I suppose the way around that is, I mean, is just as complicated as the way into it, but uh, does it have something to do with us consuming more media or getting out of social media silos or talking to our neighbors more? What is, what's the low-hanging fruit? Yeah, there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit. I can talk to you about some medium <laughs> and high-hanging fruit. As well. <laughs> what's the medium um, hang? Well, look, we need, I mean, we need um, real economic growth um, that actually makes people optimistic about the future. We need secure prosperity where people feel like uh, you know, if they have an accident or um, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, personal tragedy befalls them, they're still going to be able to lead dignified and and decent and and, and full lives. Um, we need to uh, build a welfare state that doesn't pit members of different ethnic groups against each other in the way that the sort of uh, fad for so-called race-sensitive public policies sometimes uh, threatens to do. 
we need uh, inclusive and responsive political institutions, um, which mean that if voters keep shouting, we are really worried about topic X, um, uh, politicians will actually act on it um, and therefore keep the loyalty of voters, stop them from going to extremists who voters will feel are the only ones who might actually uh, listen. Um, and we need a public culture um, that is uh, more open to political difference. We need to push back uh, against the people who would uh, shame anybody who disagrees. Um, and perhaps some of that has started to, to happen on social media. I've seen that in two or three years ago, any kind of pylon attempt would essentially work because people are too scared to stand up to it. And now often when somebody tries the pylon like that, there's people responding and saying, hey, like, what on earth are you doing? And so actually there, there starts to be a risk to the pylon. If you try to pylon, you might be piled on yourself. Um, uh, you know, that might make, you know, change the um, kind of equilibrium we're in, where people are just not going to be trying those pylons um, and, and we have a much more respectful way of dealing with each other. Um, and I think we need much more self-criticism from members of, again, I'm going to include myself in this, this sort of political, academic, intellectual elite. I think we need to realize how out of step we've become uh, with, with our compatriots um, uh, and that we don't have all of a, a monopoly on all of the political wisdom. Um, we're not better human beings uh, than others in our society. Uh, and I'm going to continue to uh, uh, you know, oppose strenuously uh, uh, politicians like Donald Trump but um, I don't feel like I have a right to sit in judgment of uh, anybody who has a different political uh, opinion from me and in, in, in the citizenry and in, in, in my compatriots. So we need to actually make a hopeful case for the kinds of societies where we can build together. And that's a lot of what I do in my last book, The Great Experiment, to say, look, what we're going through is this unique experiment. It's unprecedented. It's hard. The challenges are there. But you know what? Countries like Australia, and actually on this count, the United States as well, and Canada and Germany, we've made great progress towards building societies that are equal as well as much more ethnically and religiously diverse. Um, we actually have a lot in common. Immigrants to these societies are deeply patriotic, by the way, and they're quite optimistic yeah. about the future. Um, let us build together the vision of a future in which we're not defined by our divisions, not defined by... Uh, you know, which demographic group we're in and which politicians don't try and, you know, dice the electorate, as Barack Obama used to complain about, um, but in which we actually argue in good faith over our political differences and try to build a country in which all of us would be happy to live in. From your lips to God's ears, Yasha, and uh, may, your, uh, may, you, uh, may you also voice the next audio book in which you uh, continue to articulate such <laughs> ideas. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being on the show. I have a comment and a question, if, if I may. Please. Yeah, yeah. The comment is you have great podcasting technique. I'm going to steal this because I was assuming we were just chit chatting at the beginning. I didn't realize it would be part of the recording. Yeah, um, it's all part, it's, all part it's, of my trick. It's a very good trick. I'm gonna I'm gonna copy that. But um, but my question is why 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 is this called uncomfortable conversations? I didn't find this to be particularly uncomfortable. No, sometimes I talk to people who I mostly agree with, who I just think are interesting. But I think that they're broaching subjects that are uncomfortable. For people to talk about, uh, so it began as a way to to have conversations that we are not having because we're too afraid of triggering tri cultural tripwires, uh, and that's generally with people who I disagree with. But then I didn't want to keep it to be a, a closed off uh, 
the space. I wanted to also talk to people whose opinions I really appreciate. Uh, the common theme being that we're generally talking about things that if you were at a polite cocktail party, you would uh, you would tread carefully around. That hence hence the uncomfortableness. Amazing. Well, I'm going to subscribe to to your podcast immediately, and if I may, I I'm going to invite your listeners to subscribe to my podcast called The Good Fight. Absolutely, we will all subscribe to The Good Fight, uh, and you can go and uh, go and talk about uh, uncomfortable conversations on uh, every uh, every charming little English Oxford square you can find. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.